VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm your Dean of Green, Jill Buck, and I am so excited about today's show because we are forging into a new area, something we haven't talked about before, but I think it's critically important for all of us to consider, and that is nuclear energy. We are thrilled to have Assemblyman Chuck DeVore from Irvine, California. He has truly become one of the nation's leading advocates for lifting the moratorium on building new nuclear power plants. He's been featured on numerous TV and radio shows and has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many, many more publications. Now, as America moves forward to limit our carbon emissions to the greatest extent possible, we've got to be asking ourselves the question, can we do so without nuclear energy? Or is nuclear our only viable domestic energy option for a clean, green future? Assemblyman Chuck DeVore, we are thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Well, let's begin um, by giving our Go Green Radio listeners a brief history lesson on why the U.S. started using nuclear power plants to begin with. Take us back to the genesis, if you would. Well, it it goes back to the Adams for Peace uh, program under the Eisenhower administration. Uh, The whole thought uh, at that point was, uh, you know, let's have a dual track. Let's develop uh, uh, the peaceful and commercial applications of nuclear power while at the same time recognizing that in the modern world, America needed to be a nuclear-armed power. So at the very beginning, there was actually an intertwining uh, between America's nuclear defense efforts and America's uh, commercial nuclear power. And, of course, this caused some uh, significant angst or or, uh, hesitation among the critics of nuclear power uh, who were coming at it from the standpoint of kind of the pacifist, anti-war left. Um, The the whole thing got caught up in politics because of the fact that there – uh, that the, the commercial nuclear power program and the military uh, nuclear power p- program were actually cousins. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that uh, is what is really the genesis of 90% of the opposition to nuclear power today. Well, and what was the hope at that beginning? What was the hope well, the of hope commercial that, application? That, yeah, the hope was that power would be so inexpensive that you wouldn't even have to meter it, uh, that, that basically nuclear power would provide for such a power abundance uh, that it would really uh, change the face of America. And, of course, you have to realize that when this was being put into effect in the 1950s and early 1960s, it was only 20 to 30 years after the massive rural electrification program. It was just a few decades after Americans started to uh, purchase a lot of uh, utilities uh, you know, washers and dryers and, and uh, dishwashing machines and TVs and all these different things that used a lot more electricity than was the case just a few decades earlier when maybe people had a few electric light bulbs in the house and maybe a radio and that was it. So America was dramatically increasing its consumption of electricity uh, at that time, uh, and nuclear power was seen as a clean uh, way of providing abundant and reliable electricity 
uh, even even such that the Sierra Club was a big supporter of nuclear power initially because it didn't emit um, pollution. It didn't emit, uh, uh, you know, clouds of, of uh, toxic uh, uh, elements like, for example, uh, coal-fired uh, right. power does. Well, now, we go from this, this, this hope, you know, in, in the, the Eisenhower years, to where we are now, which is where we've got a moratorium on building new nuclear plants. What caused that moratorium? Well, it, the, the moratoriums are state by state. There are six states that have, have them, and, of course, California is the largest and most important state that has a moratorium on building new nuclear power plants. Uh, that uh, moratorium uh, was put into place in uh, 1976, and what was interesting about what was going on at that time was uh, you had a, a big push by the uh, anti-war left, which was very closely connected to the anti-nuclear left. They were pretty much one and the same uh, people who were trying to put forward an initiative in California that would have shut down all nuclear power plants then in operation. Now, that uh, initiative uh, failed by over two to one. But two weeks prior to that initiative, the legislature, the, the Democrats who controlled the legislature at the time, and Jerry Brown, the governor, agreed to put in place a law that said you can't build any more uh, new plants, that the plants currently in operation and the plants that were being constructed could be completed, but you couldn't do anything new after that. And the whole thought was that, number one, uh, it was an anti-nuclear proliferation effort. In other words, there was concern that when a commercial nuclear power plant operates, and most of them use this principle, uh, the average uh, commercial nuclear power plant generates uh, several pounds of plutonium every year. And that plutonium could theoretically be extracted and used for military purposes. The, the second bomb that was dropped on Japan, on Nagasaki, of course, was made out of plutonium. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was concern from the anti-nuclear left that, commercial nuclear power plants would somehow aid and abet uh, the uh, nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear weapon uh, effort of the United States. There was also concern, uh, growing concern at that point in time, but that was not yet necessarily paramount, as to what do you do with the leftover uh, products, the actinides, the, 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 the products of, of uh, fission that occur when you run a nuclear power plant. Now, even though the products uh, that, that are left over after you run a nuclear power plant, uh, you know, the average fuel um, uh, core, uh, the, the rods in the core of a, a commercial nuclear power plant typically will last 18 months to two years, and when you're done with it, um, you have to set these rods aside. And they're highly radioactive. And so uh, the, the concern was, what do you do with those leftover rods? Now, in terms of physical waste in terms of the, the, the amount, it's really not very much at all, certainly not very much at all compared to a coal-fired power plant, which, you know, emits an enormous amount of waste uh, every year. Uh, and, and there was the conundrum, because America, uh, under the new president uh, that came in just after that, Jimmy Carter, uh, did not want to process these fuel rods to separate out the usable components and, and put them back into the fuel cycle, which is what the French do. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Carter made the decision to, to simply uh, set this uh, material aside, and if you set it aside and store it, if the plutonium is left in the fuel rods, 
that plutonium takes roughly 200,000 years to get down to a, an acceptably low level of radiation. Now, of course, the French don't have that problem because they remove the plutonium and they use that to generate more electricity. Uh, and right. that's the right. big and divergence between what we do and what the French do. Well, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. I, I'd like to get your opinion because you've really been studying this you know, for quite some time, and you've been really a leader uh, nationwide, but definitely in the state of California for lifting the moratorium. What do you think the net effect of the moratorium on building new nuclear energy plants has been both on our energy supply and on the environment? What has been the, the upshot of that moratorium? Well, if you look at it nationally, you know, even though there's only six states that have, uh, you know, a moratorium by law, you know, the effect has been nationally there has not been any new nuclear power plants completed uh, for a couple of decades now. Uh, and the irony is that had America continued to build nuclear power plants at the rate that we were building them in the late 70s and early 80s, America would today be compliant with the Kyoto Treaty protocols that required America to reduce greenhouse gas emissions a substantial amount. Um, really? The, now say that again. That's a powerful statement. It is a powerful statement. And, and here's what happens. You've got to, you have to get your energy from somewhere. And because America has been blessed with just an enormous amount of coal, you could say that America is the Saudi Arabia of coal. We have far more energy potential in our coal than all of the Middle East has in oil. So what we did is instead of building more nuclear power plants, we built coal-fired plants. And coal is the absolute worst thing that you can burn to generate electricity if your concern is, number one, greenhouse gas emissions, and number two, other pollutants, uh, for example, uh, coal ash fly that you have to bury when you're done with it contains significant amounts of heavy metals like cadmium and mercury and other things that you have to keep isolated from the groundwater table for the rest of time. And as we know, coal generates an enormous amount of carbon dioxide, uh, roughly uh, 1,050 grams per kilowatt hour of electricity end-to-end uh, -end life cycle. That compares to 20 grams per kilowatt hour for nuclear power end-to-end. -end. That's uh, 55 times more emissions of greenhouse gases than uh, nuclear power has. So clearly by switching to the coal-fired power plants, what America ended up doing uh, is instead of having a very small uh, nuclear uh, challenge, in other words, uh, a very small amount of leftover material that we would have to figure out how to store or reprocess like the French do, we ended up with a much larger problem of a more conventional nature and just an enormous amount of coal waste and pollution that we are now dealing with because roughly half of all of America's greenhouse gas emissions today come from our addiction to coal, burning coal. Uh, which uh, is really quite remarkable when you think about it. Well, it is, and I want to talk about coal in a little bit. I, I happen to be a coal miner's daughter, um, and everybody's always tempted to sing the song. I've heard it a million times, so, mm -hmm. so bite your tongue. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about that in just a little bit. But before we, before we go to our first commercial break, I, I want to ask you, in your opinion, if the U.S hadn't stopped building nuclear power plants, and we did. How do you think things would be different in terms of, you know, we had been talking about this almost a social justice of, of such affordable energy that you wouldn't even have to meter it. How do you think 
things would be different in the U.S. today in terms of social justice and equitable access to ample amounts of clean energy had we not stopped building plants when we did? Well, uh, number one, I think we'd have more manufacturing uh, activity going on in America, and manufacturing jobs often represent the first few rungs on the financial ladder uh, that people can climb on their way to uh, financial stability and security. Uh, Number two, uh, we certainly would be making our greenhouse gas emission requirements under the Kyoto Treaty, which would mean that we would not now be talking about these draconian cap-and-trade programs like the one that uh, Senator Barbara Boxer just uh, uh, marshaled through the Senate a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, This cap-and-trade scheme will cost the U.S. economy trillions of dollars to implement and will put more people out of work. Number two, or number three, in California, for example, we generate 45% of our electricity with natural gas. If we weren't burning so much natural gas to make electricity and instead using nuclear power, that natural gas could be available to run in vehicles, and you'd have more abundant and less costly natural gas that could certainly be used for all of the bus fleets and taxis and other uh, you know, fleet-type vehicles where it's easier to use. That would, of course, lessen our dependence somewhat on Middle Eastern uh, crude uh, and somewhat slightly lessen uh, the overall cost of transportation fuels. So I, I think that there certainly is a a large kind of systemic um, uh, scenario that you could have painted had we continued to build nuclear power plants. Now, it's important to note that the critics say that, well, the the plants that were completed in the late 70s and early 80s were dramatically expensive, some of them a factor of 10 more expensive than what was initially calculated. Mm -hmm. And that's all true, but a lot of it is due to the fact that we had uh, 20% interest rates at the time, and lawsuits prevented many of these uh, plants from being put uh, quickly into operation. And so you ended up with a billion or $2 billion worth of carrying costs on a plant that wasn't generating electricity. Therefore, you had to amortize all of those costs for the financing of this plant that was just sitting idle while the lawsuits were working their way through the system, paying right. 20% interest on your money. Of course, you're, you know, the plant's going to be more expensive and... You bet. And we're going to be talking more about this when we come back from these commercial breaks. More with California Assemblyman Chuck DeVore in just a few moments. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you ever thought about having your own Internet talk show? Well, if you said yes, then click About Us. Then click Be a Host to get more information. 
or just call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Say that again. 480-294-6417. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm thrilled today to bring to you a very unique perspective in the Go Green Radio world. We've talked about a number of different types of green and clean energies, but we have not talked about nuclear energy to any large extent. Today's entire show is devoted to nuclear energy and the environmental impact, of course, the cost-benefit as well. And we have today a guest who has really become a national leader in uh, talking about why we should be thinking about lifting the moratorium on building nuclear plants, what's in it for us, what's in it for our children's future. And we're thrilled to have California Assemblyman Chuck DeVore with us. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio, Assemblyman DeVore. Thank you very much. Well, personally, I'd love to know, because we like to get to know our guests, and we like to know what makes them tick. So. Tell our Go Green Radio listeners, how did you become interested in nuclear power? What caused you to begin advocating for a lift on the moratorium to build new nuclear plants? Well, I've been interested in nuclear power uh, for quite some time. Uh, When I was in high school, I actually applied to uh, uh, be part of the U.S. Navy nuclear program uh, through Naval ROTC, and it was only through an error of paperwork that my uh, scholarship was delayed by one day, and, and they denied it. Uh, I was hoping to go to Caltech and end up going into the Navy nuclear program. Well, uh, several decades later, I find myself in the legislature, and in 2006, we passed this uh, first-of-a-kind landmark bill, AB 32. It was California's own effort to reduce uh, California's greenhouse gas emissions by some 30 percent by uh, 2010, which, uh, uh, pardon me, 2020. So if you look at the timeline, uh, we have 11 years left on this timeline to reduce uh, California's emissions by 30%. Now, I voted against AB 32 because while I thought it was a, certainly a well-meaning policy, I looked at the fact that California had already lost uh, much of its manufacturing base. We already had among the highest electricity costs in the country. Uh, and I further looked at the fact that if you got rid of all privately owned automobiles in the state of California, you couldn't make such an aggressive number. If you got rid of all electrical production in the state of California, you couldn't make that 30% reduction number. And that further, uh, upon analysis that I did through my own spreadsheets and, and uh, you know extensive analysis, uh, I figured out that unless California was really serious about this, in, in that it lifted its some three-decade ban on the construction of modern, safe, and reliable nuclear power plants, that there was no physical way that we could actually reach the 30% reduction number, uh, accepting that perhaps we got rid of the people that live here, you know, that that (laughs) people moved to other states 
and that there was a major economic decline in the state, and we could certainly make the number that way. In fact, ironically, I, I heard a few weeks ago that in the north coast of California, they are making their AB32 numbers right now because of the massive unemployment up there, uh, largely caused by the evisceration of the timber industry in the north coast. And that's not what we want. No, I mean, obviously, that's not the way to reach an environmental goal. <laughs> yeah, you know, unemployed people don't emit very much carbon dioxide, right? Well, uh, that's not the solution that we want. So. As I looked at this, I thought, well, the only way that California could, from a, uh, an engineering and a, an economic standpoint, actually make its aggressive AB32 greenhouse gas reduction target was if it lifted its ban on the construction of modern nuclear power plants. And so it was kind of like, if that, then this, uh, right. just kind of a logical, uh, you know, one thing follows another sort of uh, calculation that I made. And so I I've uh, since then have drafted five separate uh, bills that in one way or another would encourage the construction of modern nuclear power plants in, in, in California. Now, four of them, of course, have already gone down to defeat in the previous two legislative years. I have a fifth offering this year. I'm certainly under no illusions that it's going to pass because even though uh, I get private uh, assurances from uh, Democrat legislative leaders who tell me that it makes sense and, and that they would certainly be open to supporting it. Mm -hmm. um, there is this hesitation because it's nuclear and people are, are worried that perhaps there's political ramifications that uh, they might not be able to overcome, even though public opinion polls here in California have shown that for the first time in 30 years, a majority of Californians, not a plurality, but now a majority of Californians support the construction of modern nuclear power plants. That's very interesting. And, you know, I know you live in the real world, Assemblyman DeVore, but I'm going to ask you to, to pretend that you're in a bubble for just a moment. And if money and politics were no issue and you were given free reign to manage the U.S. nuclear energy program, what would you do? Give us your perfect world scenario. Well, I would uh, press forward with the construction of Generation 3-plus uh, reactors and uh, uh, begin to put on track Generation 4 reactors. Those are reactors that, for example, don't need water to, um, to be cooled, so you can put them out into uh, uh, unpopulated areas of the desert, uh, and they're simply air-cooled. They cannot uh, melt down. It's physically impossible for them to melt down. I would work on thorium reactors, which uh, thorium is a very abundant element, uh, especially in places like India where they're pressing ahead with a thorium reactor program. And again, thorium reactors can be built in such a way that they can be air-cooled and are physically incapable of melting down. Uh, I would press forward with a reprocessing program. So like the French, we could return 96% of all the material that goes through a reactor uh, and, and return that uh, material back into the uh, uh, stream of making and producing power and thus dramatically reducing both the volume and the radioactivity of the resultant material that we have to uh, store. Uh, and, um, and lastly, I would uh, continue to fund um, aggressively research into nuclear fusion. And, of course, nuclear fusion, unlike fission, uh, is the process that powers the sun itself. And if we can ever get to the point where we reach an energy a positive calculation uh, from nuclear fusion, uh, meaning that you get more energy out of it than you put into it, uh, then that really does unlock um, the secret of 
inexhaustible and um, affordable uh, power uh, for uh, planet Earth, and I think that that would be a, a spectacular breakthrough for humankind. Well, it really would, and I mean, you know, there's so many groups out there that are that are very aware of the fact that if we could provide a means of affordable, clean energy uh, universally, what a dramatic increase in the standard of living that would cause, and what a depressurization in our geopolitical you know, consternation that we are constantly, you know, battling for natural resources that are finite. Um, you know, this could provide the answer to so many of the difficulties we face. Yeah, yeah, you, absolutely it is. And, and that's why we need to continue to to work on nuclear power. You know, it's all about energy density. And it, it's something that uh, is a pretty easy concept to understand. If you look at the, the human's uh, humankind's history with energy, what you'll see is we initially, of course, started out with, with human energy and fire and, and uh, uh, you know, windmills and, and uh, water energy. And as time goes on, what you see is an increasing amount of energy coming from a smaller and smaller and smaller cross-section because that's where you get your efficiency from. And the thing about nuclear power is that it has the greatest energy density of anything that we use. You get the most amount of power from the smallest amount of material, the smallest amount of space. And uh, that's really the, the attraction of nuclear energy. Uh, if you look at a place, for example, like San Onofre, where you have two reactors that together uh, generate uh, roughly about 5% of California's uh, power needs, Wow. Uh, those reactors are doing their work on about an 82-acre uh, cross-section of land on the um, on the coast of California. Now, if you compare that with, uh, for example, solar thermal uh, fields out in the Mojave Desert, what you'll find is that uh, is that those solar field uh, areas are going to be producing about one forty-second the amount of power that San Onofre does on a patch of land that's uh, multiple times larger, uh, you know, well over 1,000 acres versus 82 acres. Uh, and that's because they have a low energy density. And thank goodness that, that solar radiation has a low energy density. Otherwise, if you walked outside on a nice sunny day, you'd be fried to a crisp. Uh, exactly. It would and, be like, you know, uh, the We don't want that, obviously. That's not something that uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we would look forward to. Well, let me ask you this. Assemblyman DeVore, I, you know, we all know that there are opponents to nuclear energy out there, um, are they, you know, and, and sometimes I am surprised that they are representing environmental groups. I mean, is there a valid environmental concern uh, that people are voicing in terms of their opposition to nuclear energy, or is that sort of a, a facade for something else? Well, I think there are, are multiple things at work here. First of all, you have the the old connection between the anti-nuclear left and the environmental left. You, you still have a number of people who were active in, for example, protesting the Vietnam War, protesting um, uh, Ronald Reagan's effort to build up our, our defenses, including nuclear defenses against the old Soviet Union, and many of the same personalities that were there opposing Reagan's nuclear buildup and supporting a U.S. nuclear freeze back in the early 80s are the same people, of course, uh, opposing a renaissance in the nuclear industry today. Uh, you also have, of course, uh, the, the usual cross-section of corporate interests, for example, 
uh, you know, individuals who may favor wind power or solar power, of course, are, are throwing rocks at the other sources of, uh, of energy and vice versa. Uh, that's to be expected. That's kind of normal uh, competition. There's another aspect, though, to the environmental movement that is very serious and very philosophical that I think a lot of people don't know or don't really care to come to grips with. And that's it goes to the heart of the issue of control. You see it with things like greenhouse gas emissions. You see it with things like water here in the state of California, where, of course, Mark Twain once famously said that whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. <laughs> with with both greenhouse gas, gas emissions and water in California, if you uh, say that that we're going to control these sorts of things because uh, they're harmful to the environment, and once you then accept that premise, it gives the bureaucracy and it gives uh, left-leaning politicians an excuse to control every aspect of human behavior. And you saw this last year when Attorney General uh, Jerry Brown, an individual who is presumably going to be running for governor, was suing counties to prevent development, saying that the development, their land use decisions, would cause more greenhouse gas emissions. So you see how everything links back. You can use greenhouse gas emissions as an excuse to regulate or control every aspect of human behavior, just like you can with water. If water is scarce, and you don't care to increase the number of dams and, and the amount of uh, conveyance so that you can move the water around, then you can use things like water permits and runoff as, again, a way to regulate and control every aspect of human activity. And well, at its heart, I really were think abundant, a lot of the opposition is about power. Right, and so if energy were abundant and not scarce uh, and it were clean, then what you're saying is that control might be subjugated to, you know, other things. because right. we can have our liberty uh, rather than them having control over our lives. I see. And that's, you know, that's something that I don't think we discuss very much in mainstream uh, conversations. I certainly don't hear that kind of thing on the soccer field. So it's good to, to get some enlightenment. Um, Go Green Radio is committed to, you know, giving folks information from every perspective. And, in fact, we're going to be right back after these commercial breaks with more on nuclear energy, what you need to know, and we'll be back with more with Assemblyman DeVore in just a few moments. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am your Dean of Green, bringing it to you. I'm Jill Buck with Go Green Radio, and we have got a very unique guest with us today, Assemblyman Chuck DeVore, who's running for United States Senate in the state of California, is talking to us about a subject he has truly become a national leader and uh, advocate for, and that's nuclear energy, uh, clean, green, carbon-free. Um, we're talking about what we need to know as average Go Green Radio listeners about our energy future, and what role nuclear could or should play in that energy future. So thank you so much for joining us, Assemblyman DeVore. I know you're very busy, and we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, you know, most people that I talk to know very little about nuclear energy, and I, I, I admit I hang out with, uh, you know, soccer moms, and we talk about it a little bit. But most folks that I talk to have some trepidations based on their understanding of what happened at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Um, what do you think needs to happen in order to better educate the general public about nuclear energy? You mentioned before that, you know, you get some private chats with, with legislators who say, gosh, you know, Chuck, it makes a lot of sense. I would vote your way on nuclear uh, energy, but, but I'm afraid that I wouldn't be able to withstand the political pressure. We know that relieving political pressure oftentimes happens when the electorate is educated. What do we need to know, Chuck? Tell us more. Well, I think that the most important thing to understand is that every form of energy has its trade-offs, has its risks and benefits, uh, even solar power. I mean, everything out there uh, has risks associated with it, and you have to put them into uh, relative terms. Uh, a good thing to know about nuclear power is if you look at the, the operation record of nuclear power plants in the West, uh, you now have uh, some 2,000 reactor years of uh, operation in which no member of the public uh, has been harmed by uh, nuclear power. Uh, now, you can't say that about things like, for example, hydroelectric dams or uh, even rooftop solar installations, which, frankly, because you're dealing with a roof and uh, um, it's typically high off the ground, uh, people unfortunately die and, and get grievously injured falling off the roofs, whether installing them or maintaining uh, those panels. Uh, similarly, uh, things like um, windmills, uh, you know, wind turbines out in the desert, uh, they play grievous havoc with uh, raptors and, and bats and, and uh, other forms of wildlife that, uh, that we would you know, typically not want to harm. They also take up large amounts of uh, of acreage, uh, and there's arguments over you know exactly what they do to the vista. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Senator Ted Kennedy out in Massachusetts has been a famous opponent of putting wind turbines off the coast of Cape Cod. So you have to look at everything, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, what are the risks? What are the rewards? And when I look at nuclear power, I think the most important pe thing that people ought to understand is what is it that nuclear power is going to be supplanting or replacing. Well, in America, 
the number one thing that it would be replacing or supplanting is America's uh, continuing use of coal-fired uh, electrical plants. And if you look at the coal industry and if you look at the byproducts of burning coal, uh, critics of the coal industry in America would say that 30,000 people every year are dying prematurely because of exposure to the carcinogens that are in nuclear, or pardon me, in coal uh, uh, fumes, uh, the, the small particles that are chemically active that lodge in your lungs that, that coal uh, puts out, not to mention, of course, the, the people that die every year in, in coal mining accidents. And you have to compare that then with the record of the nuclear power industry in America. And if you were to make that comparison, any reasonable person using logic, using statistics, would have to come to the conclusion that nuclear power, that modern, uh, safe and effective nuclear power is far uh, safer uh, to people who live around it, to people who work in the industry, uh, than is coal. In fact, the uh, UN's World Health Organization has estimated that some two to three million people every year uh, across the planet die prematurely because of uh, uh, humanity's addiction to burning fossil fuels, mainly coal. Uh, most of those deaths are, in fact, being caused by coal. Now, if you look at uh, Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, uh, you have to ask just a very blunt question. How many people died as the result of the Three Mile Island incident in 1979 in North America? And, of course, the response is nobody. Uh, nobody died because the containment dome uh, worked as it was supposed to. There was a partial meltdown. It was, uh, you know, obviously uh, an incident that generated a lot of concern. But the containment dome worked as advertised. It, it, it prevented uh, leakage of, of, of harmful amounts of radiation in the environment. Now, if you compare that with Chernobyl, which happened in 1986, as I recall, uh, the Chernobyl reactor... Uh, number one, it didn't have a containment dome. Number two, it used an older, different sort of technology than is used in North America. And number three, the accident happened as the result of an unauthorized military experiment that was occurring over the weekend when there was less staff at the facility. Now, in spite of all of that, if you look at UN reports and other medical reports as to what happened, in spite of the, the completely inept reaction by the Soviet regime at the time. They didn't warn their people about it. They didn't tell the people around the plant to take their iodine pills, etc. What you find is any objective scientific study says that roughly 50 people died as the result of Chernobyl. Uh, half of those 50 people were the direct responders, the firefighters, and the emergency personnel that were trying to get control of the situation, and roughly 25 people as the result of exposure to radiation over time. Now, there's been some 4,000 cancers that have occurred, most of which are soft tissue cancers like thyroid cancer. Uh, my own uh, wife has suffered from thyroid cancer and had her thyroid removed, and because of that, I know firsthand that it is a fairly easy cancer to deal with. I mean, if you're going to get cancer, that's the kind of cancer you want to get because the survival rate is, is very good. Mm -hmm. And so the, the fact is that around Chernobyl, the worst nuclear disaster in, in humankind's history, uh, what you find is, is that the amount of, uh, of, of death and the amount of uh, destruction is not nearly as great as, for example, a couple of decades ago, a hydroelectric dam burst in India and killed some 15,000 people within an hour. Well, uh, that was far greater a disaster, and yet who's talking about that? 
<laughs> so right. You have to look at things relative. What 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 are you doing in exchange for what are you not doing? And well, I believe that that the record of the coal uh, industry in, in in America is such that that nuclear power is a more benign. It's it's a, a more safe and more effective and less polluting uh, alternative to coal power. Well, and, and I can speak, you know, very personally to, uh, you know, watching my dad come out of the mine for 25 years, filthy, and so many of the folks that, that he worked with got black lung disease. And, and, uh, and I also remember uh, uh, several cave-ins um, where people that we knew were killed in coal mines. And uh, even though there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of safety measures put in place, uh, there's still, it's still a very dark and scary place to work in the coal mines, that's for sure. But I have to think about the, you know, the workforce that currently, you know, we have domestically, you know, a lot of folks who are relying on coal mines for their family income. Can coal miners be retrained to work at nuclear power plants? I mean, are there blue-collar jobs that we could transition, you know, those folks from a fossil fuel-reliant uh, economy to a nuclear power economy? Well, it's going to happen one way or the other. If you look at the current administration's policies regarding cap and trade and the statement that uh, our new president made while he was campaigning that basically, um, you know, you could build a new coal-fired plant if you want, but you'd go bankrupt under his policies. So it seems to me we're already on track to do this through a cap and trade program, which essentially acts as a massive carbon tax on anything that produces carbon and then shifts that money to things that aren't uh, producing carbon, although the the current plans, as I've seen them, do not include nuclear power as one of the benefits, uh, beneficiaries of, of you know these carbon credits, although it should. And so the question that I have is, you could certainly reduce our carbon emissions by simply eviscerating the remaining manufacturing base in America by reducing our use of coal, uh, by making energy more costly and putting more and more Americans out of work and really just shifting jobs overseas to places like China where they're building uh, two 1,000-megawatt coal-fired plants every week in China now. Uh, or we could get serious about a domestic energy uh, policy, and we could uh, prudently increase uh, domestic production of oil and gas reserves as well as modern nuclear power, in an attempt to keep electrical costs reasonable and further to keep more manufacturing jobs in America. And manufacturing jobs, of course, are, are precisely those sorts of jobs that people who currently work in America's coal industry uh, would uh, be well-suited for. And we need more manufacturing jobs in America. And if uh, the manufacturing is, is uh, being run off of uh, clean uh, electricity uh, and affordable electricity, uh, then uh, the American worker, who is the most productive worker in the world, can compete against anybody. You bet. You bet. You make some really compelling points. And in our final segment, and we're going to be going to commercial break in just a moment, but in our final segment, I'd like to talk to you about how do we get from where we are now to to the future you describe. You make some really good points, Simbaman DeVore, and so folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more after these commercial breaks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. I'm your hostess with the bostess, Jill Buck, and you know that I always try to bring you the very best in Go Green programming. And we have got a guest today that is really breaking the mold when it comes to talking about clean, green energy. You know, we hear a lot about solar, and that's okay, and you hear about wind, and that's good, too. But we're talking about nuclear energy. Um, and, and when you look at how much energy a nuclear plant can produce, um, it's far and away greater um, than any wind farm or solar farm that I've seen so far. And we are talking to California Assemblyman Chuck DeVore, who's also running for U.S. Senate, and uh, he has become quite the national leader and talking about lifting the moratorium on building new nuclear plants, and we are pleased to have him on Go Green Radio today. Thank you so much for joining us, Assemblyman DeVore. Thanks for having me on. You know, it seems like that the people pushing for electric cars would be one of the best possible partners for nuclear energy proponents like yourself, because currently, if they're successful in selling their products, it just means that we have to run our fossil fuel-fired power plants more in order to meet the increase in electricity demand to defuel, to fuel the cars, and and that's not good if we keep running our fossil fuel fired plants, you know, longer and more. Um, have you found that electric car companies are supportive of your efforts? Well, no. What I've found so far is electric car companies are are out there uh, producing this myth, this fiction of the quote zero emission vehicle. Every time I hear the phrase zero emission vehicle, I shake my fist or want to yell at the TV or the, the radio <laughs> because there is no such thing. Have they invented perpetual motion yet? Have they, have they figured out a way to get something from nothing? The fact is that if you were to charge up an electric vehicle in a place like Pennsylvania, which is almost exclusively coal-fired, mm-hmm. that electric vehicle would have more emissions, more harm to the environment than a Hummer would uh, driving around uh, you know, with its gigantic engine, and that's because the electricity for that electric vehicle would be coming from a coal-fired power plant. And so 
you know, you have to track back where this electricity is coming from. And if it's coming from fossil fuels, you're really not doing that much to help the environment. And that's not even getting into all the heavy metals that are used in the production of the battery and how do you dispose of those and what do those things do to the environment. So, uh, no, we haven't had a lot of allies there. Where we are getting allies uh, in the fight to bring reliable and clean nuclear energy to places like California is, uh, first of all, the, the trade unions. Uh, people like the electrical workers, the pipe fitters, and the steel workers, they build and maintain America's nuclear power plants, and they also benefit from having reliable and affordable electricity. Uh, in fact, the, the head of the pipe fitter union in late 2008 made a statement at their national convention that they were not going to be supporting any politicians who did not also support modern nuclear power, and I certainly welcomed uh, that statement. Uh, in my previous attempts to get uh, nuclear power uh, uh, bills passed through the California Assembly, uh, a key uh, part of the testimony in favor of my bills has been from uh, representatives of the AFL-CIO trade unions umbrella, uh, who, as I said, would build and operate these plants. Uh, and, and clearly, these individuals are a traditional core of the Democrat constituency. So it certainly causes... Uh, some of the, uh, the people in the majority in Sacramento to think twice about their opposition to these nuclear power bills when they when they see um, the AFL-CIO construction trades uh, unions uh, supporting mm -hmm. my efforts. Uh, the other thing that you're seeing is uh, some reconsideration from some prominent people uh, who helped start America's modern environmental movement. People like uh, Stuart Brandt, who was one of the uh, co-founders of the Whole Earth Catalog. He's out of the Bay Area, and, and he, he's been uh, really saying some interesting things about nuclear power as he's reevaluated uh, the efficacy of nuclear power in reducing uh, pollution in, in America. Uh, another individual that you see, one of the founders of Greenpeace, um, uh, Patrick Moore, uh, he's become an advocate for nuclear power, um, and he's openly stated uh, kind of his angst over having contributing contributed to the shutdown of uh, the construction of nuclear power plants in the late 70s and early 80s and forcing America to instead turn to building coal-fired power plants, which he's now come to the conclusion cause far more harm to the environment than nuclear power uh, ever has or ever will. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you're, you're beginning to see kind of key uh, shifts in opinion among uh, key constituencies and opinion leaders uh, as people are beginning to realize that uh, you know nuclear power needs to have a second look, uh, and that it is a um, certainly um, an alternative that needs to be seriously examined uh, when compared to things like uh, coal-fired power plants. Well, I'm always excited to hear that you know when common sense begins to prevail over partisanship, that's always good news. <laughs> and I'm glad to hear that some of the traditional uh, constituencies of one party or the other would begin to congeal around a common sense, you know, uh, point of view, which is how about some clean energy that creates a lot of domestic jobs? That's a good thing. It is. 
And, and I'm curious also where the utility companies are uh, on this issue. What's been your experience well, with utilities? The, yeah, the utility companies in California are, are prone to following the path of least resistance. And the path of least <laughs> resistance right now is to go along with the mandates that the legislature has put on them, even though they're not going to meet those mandates for renewable power and for low-carbon uh, power, uh, and instead build nuclear power plants out of state uh, and pay uh, significant sums of money to the states that uh, whose power lines would have to be traversed to connect that power to California, such that at the end of the day, that power will cost at least double what it would if the power was generated here in California. And of course, we won't get the tax uh, base and the jobs base mm-hmm. by having the plants located here, but rather in places like New Mexico or Colorado. And meanwhile, uh, states like Nevada or uh, Arizona will reap hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, essentially in, in a legal extortion, uh, to uh, have us pay more uh, to them to have our power lines traverse their state. And the sad thing is the further away you locate a power plant from the source of power, the more power you lose 24-7 through resistance on the power lines. Uh, The average amount of resistance that we lose in our power grid in America is about 6%. But if you locate a power plant 1,000 or 1,500 miles away, that's going to be about 15%. So you greatly reduce the efficiency of your operation by locating a plant so far away. So unfortunately, the the publicly regulated utilities in California really aren't um, into kind of being on the, the, the bleeding edge of advocating something that they view as is politically risky. Um, now, there is a group out of Fresno, the Fresno Nuclear Energy Group. It's a bipartisan group of uh, investors and ranchers and, and people in industry and business and labor who are looking to put nucle- a modern nuclear power plant in California's sixth largest city. And one of the reasons for this is that Fresno has had an intractably high unemployment rate and underemployment rate for quite a while now as their manufacturing industry has shriveled and that this has led to uh, greater social ills like uh, divorce and suicide and child abuse and spousal abuse as people are frustrated and, and just uh, depressed by not having work. And so the Fresno Nuclear Energy Group is seeking to put a 1,600-megawatt uh, modern uh, Generation 3-plus uh, French-designed uh, reactor in at Fresno. And if they did that, it would add about 4%, 5% or so of, of power to the California electrical grid uh, and would produce an enormous economic engine that, that, for example, they could offer free electricity to a manufacturing uh, entity for five or ten years if they they agreed to locate in the Fresno area, therefore dramatically increasing the stability of their job space. Uh, And this is a wonderful effort, a bipartisan uh, effort of folks who are seeking to lift California's uh, 32-year-old ban on the construction of modern nuclear power plants. Well, that's good to hear. And I, I really I feel like there's going to be a lot of push on the part of Go Green Radio listen, listeners to uh, get involved, uh, to wonder what they can do to support your efforts. In the 30 seconds or so that we have left, Assemblyman DeVore, tell our listeners what they can do to support what you're doing, to get involved. Um, give us a call to action. 
Well, uh, you know, I am running for the U.S. Senate against Barbara Boxer, someone who has made her career out of opposing modern nuclear power as well as domestic oil and gas production. And so a significant part of my support base are people from uh, all parties who are supporting my, my uh, campaign because they support modern nuclear power. So I would recommend just going to the ChuckDevore.com uh, website and, and signing up and, and let us know that uh, you're interested in nuclear power and, and follow our efforts uh, because we are going to make modern nuclear power a centerpiece of our campaign against Barbara Boxer. Well, and it's refreshing to know that there are folks who um, who are coming up with realistic solutions um, to our job situation, our employment uh, situation, and our our quest for leadership in the world on clean and green energy. And I I would love to see America take the lead. I mean, the fact that you said at the beginning of the show that if we had maintained our our rate of building power plants, what we used to have, we would be currently meeting the Kyoto Protocol. That's exciting news. Assemblyman DeVore, thank you so much for being with us on Go Green Radio. Folks, we'll be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.